It's a mad dash to the finish of the 2023 Georgia General Assembly. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of your political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Coming up on today's episode, it was a big day at the AJC with the retirement of Kevin Riley and the naming of his new successor. Spoiler alert, it is not Patricia Murphy. Patricia, we'll talk more about that at the very end. We've got so much other developments to talk about, including the final frenzy before Signe die next week in the Georgia General Assembly, what bills may make it, what bills may not. Also talking a little bit more about Governor Kemp's approach to his first legislative second session of his second term, and a little bit more about Donald Trump's expected indictment. And also in some other development, Patricia, my daughter, has been named a page at the Georgia Capitol for next week. So on Monday, you can see my 12-year-old frolic around the halls of the Georgia Gold Dome. <laughs> Greg, this is so exciting. I am her biggest fan. So I'll be asking if there's anything I could do to help her out with her job that day. Um, my kids, what are we doing on Monday? I don't know. It'll be some combination of baseball games. Both my daughter and my son are playing on the same little league team. So that's been an adventure in parenting. And We've got writing lessons, soccer team, et cetera, et cetera. Today, school got out at noon for no particular reason, which makes my head explode a little, but that's okay. My third grade school was out today too. And my my older one, being her mother's daughter, when I told her the news about the page, she goes, yes, yes, but will I still be able to make it to tennis practice? So I told her she would. She will not (laughs) be stuck there until midnight like we will. (laughs) Exactly. Let's take a quick break. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Okay, let's get right to the news. This impasse over hospital regulations is growing ever more complicated, and it's mushrooming into a struggle that could really shape the last few days of the legislative session. At one corner, we have Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones and his allies in the Senate and beyond who want to make it easier for hospitals to open up new facilities. Jones's father, Bill, is among them, and he wants to build a hospital potentially on land he owns in his home county of Butts County. On the other corner is large hospital companies, including Wellstar, which worries that new hospitals in the lieutenant governor's backyard could threaten other facilities it owns nearby. But there's also another consideration. Wellstar is in the middle of negotiations for the takeover of the state-run Augusta University Health System, and Governor Kemp and his allies really, really want this deal to happen. So Patricia, there's a lot at stake. And what it's looking like right now is that this battle will continue to really define what bills pass and what don't the final couple of days of the session. So Greg, this has been the most unexpected standoff because we had been told and it had been observed by lots of people in the Capitol that it was this very, very smooth session between the House and the Senate. Um, A lobbyist told you and I at the same time, 
on crossover night, actually, mm-hmm. he said, wow, the biggest difference now is that the hate is gone. There was just not, he was not seeing that same rivalry between the state house and the state Senate. And this issue has suddenly exploded into more than a rivalry. It almost feels like a power struggle. It feels like something that has become very personal. It has a lot to do with Birchin's family. But then it also has a lot to do with the this statewide question about what to do about rural health in the state. It's all gotten very mixed up very quickly. And with just two full days left in the legislative session, we really don't know where this is going. And to see Republican leaders fighting with amongst themselves over issues like this. And we say Republican leaders, we're going to include Governor Kemp in that as well, because Governor Kemp and House Speaker John Burns are both uh, very much wanting to move forward without passing this certificate of need bill. This infighting among Republicans is something that we're just not used to seeing to this level, to this degree, and at this point in a legislative session over a single issue that has a lot to do with one member's family business. So it's really been something to see, and we simply don't know how this is going to end up. And Patricia, this will be the topic of your latest column. Yeah, it's going to publish digitally Friday mornings, probably about two hours after this podcast goes live. It'll be print. It'll be in the Sunday print edition. And um, I've set it up that to me, it really is the first really big test of Burt Jones' leadership. And it's going to show us where he is coming from and what his priorities are. We have long known that his family business is very important to him. It's important to his political career. He's been able to self-fund his own campaigns uh, to the tune of $4 million for his lieutenant governor's campaign. He was able to loan himself because of his family's immense wealth. Um, And then fast forward, now that he's in this seat and there is a situation that his family could potentially benefit from, and that's on the opposite side of what other GOP leaders are looking for, what happens next? What decision does Burt Jones make in this moment? We'll learn a lot about Jones's priorities and his leadership style and how much power he has um, compared to the governor and compared to Speaker John Burns um, by the end of this whole situation. And meanwhile, there's a lot of legislation still on the table that could be left behind in the crossfire. At, at this moment, at the moment of this taping, the Senate is still balking at a new phase of mental health legislation. It was one of really the landmark legacies of the late Speaker David Ralston. So it's very important uh, to members of the House and, and of course, also to the governor. Um, sports betting legislation could also be in danger. Um, Burt Jones said to me in an interview that he wanted a verdict on that measure, um, but it might not go forward because of this impasse between House and Senate lawmakers. Um, we also know the budget is up in the air. Senate lawmakers pushed to cut 150 Senate lawmakers pushed to cut $105 million from the budget. That is not coincidentally the exact amount that went to benefit a hospital that could be involved in the Wellstar potential takeover. And the Senate passed a measure that could deprive Wellstar of a really significant tax break. And in the process, it inadvertently dinged Children's Healthcare of Atlanta before that legislation was tweaked. So it is getting really, really brutal out there. Yes. And it, to your point, is just sweeping up all of these other measures. The mental health bill is something that we should spend a second on because that this has been pitched as um, the companion bill to 
HB 1013, which, as you said, was David Ralston's um, major, major goal last session. It was passed unanimously. It had um, immense statewide um, appeal. It's something that members really wanted. They know their constituents really wanted it. This bill that's coming, uh, HB 502, has a lot of the funding in there. It also has a lot of additions that uh, groups and mental health specialists and the sheriff's offices have all gone to leadership to say, hey, these are the things that we need also, there's money in there and um, sort of legal language in there uh, to deal with uh, mental health care for minors, to deal with housing for people who are mentally ill and struggling to um, just to get housing. A number of homeless are mentally ill as well. And the homelessness problem and the mental health crisis are all wound up together. So this bill is designed to address a number of really big, tough statewide issues that are affecting people all across Georgia. That's really gotten swept up in this question about the Certificate of Need Bill um, and then about exactly what's going to happen with rural health care and specifically what's going to happen in Butts County, uh, which is where Bart Jones is from. So the fact that this is having so many tentacles um, mm-hmm. is also a sign of just how hard Burt Jones is pushing this issue. This is something that is so important to him that his office is saying it's this or that you got to choose. Um, we're gonna we can help you on this if you can help us on that. Um, it's really something to watch. And um, again, these are really huge statewide priorities that are on the table as this conversation is winding down to kind of a cliffhanger at this point. Yeah, and Patricia, it's really unclear to me what the end game here is because I get it. I I understand on different levels why Burt Jones wants this legislation beyond you know that what we've reported about is uh, his the hospital that could be built, 100-bed private hospital that could be built in his native Butts County, but also a, a more general uh, push for more what he calls quality healthcare access in rural areas because this bill would clear the way for uh, an easier road to build hospitals in counties of fewer than 50,000 people without getting state sign-off on something called a certificate of need. I get it. But what I don't understand is the end game here because you have the governor's office and you have the House who are both not just opposed – they're, they're adamantly opposed. The governor's gone to the lengths of sending his top aide, Trey Kilpatrick, and the chancellor of the higher education system, Sonny Perdue, to a closed-door meeting of House Republican lawmakers telling them the risks of passing this hospital overhaul would mean the end of a possible Wellstar takeover bid of the Augusta University health system, something the state really wants to happen. So I don't know how... Burt Jones and his allies will ever navigate around that instrumental, that, that the, the, the crucial dilemma they have, which is the governor's not going to go for this. So, you know, you spend your capital on this. Maybe there's some grand scheme, you know, there's a lot of different layers of chess games out there at the Capitol, but I don't get it. Well, you're exactly right. Nothing becomes law without the governor's signature. If you don't have the governor on board, it's not happening. And there are two days left. What's the plan? And if you are dying on this hill, what pieces of legislation are you taking up the hill with you that aren't going to get passed? And is that really worth the ill will and um, the potentially really damaged relationships that this could cause? Um, At the same time, I think it's important to say there is also a lot of anger against Wellstar 
in both of these chambers because of the fact that they walked away from Atlanta Medical Center. Um, They did that, they said, because they were losing millions and millions and millions of dollars every year. That seems about right. That certainly was a hospital where the population um, was not a high paying population. Um, But the concern here with the certificate of need bill is that it will green light hospitals in rural areas or less populated areas. Let's let's describe it that way. It's not always going to be sort of like a hospital in the middle of a million farms. It is less populated areas of the state. And um, the concern is that newer hospitals will come in and poach not just patients from existing rural hospitals, but also staff from existing rural hospitals. And Wellstar owns um, hospitals in the area where uh, particularly the Uh, Butts County Hospital would open. And their big concern is that the staff would leave their hospitals, not just the patients. And the patients that would be left there are the ones who um, wouldn't be able to pay their bills. So it sort of unravels the entire apple cart for rural health, um, this very careful balancing act that has been required. Um, On the other side of the other side of that, Wellstar is also the largest provider of indigent care here in the state. They are a partner here in the state. You can't really stay on the opposite side of Wellstar for very long without really seeing how quickly you can lose very important services um, of a company like that here in Georgia. So to your point, I don't know exactly where the end game is here, either politically, why are you, why is there a big fight with the governor with four years left in Mm -hmm. the term? (laughs) That's a long time for a governor to be mad at you. Um, And then What's the plan with Wellstar that at this point, you know, you could sort of call them too big to get mad at, not too big to fail, but too big to get mad at. The state needs them in the healthcare equation here in the state. And the lieutenant governor's office has gotten crosswise with both of those. And one final point before we go to break, I sat down with the lieutenant governor a couple of days ago before all this brouhaha really erupted and I asked him about his relationship with the governor. And Bert Jones basically told me, look, uh, we have our differences. We definitely have, have opposed each other on certain issues, but we don't let it cloud over. We don't let it hang over. So we'll see if, if they can move beyond this one. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Your host, Greg Bluestein, with your other host, Patricia Murphy. And before we begin our second segment, we have a very special announcement. Next Thursday, March 30th at 5 p.m., we're going to host our first ever Politically Georgia live virtual podcast taping. We've held some live in-person events, but we have not yet held a live virtual event. You're invited if you're 
and you're invited if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal Constitution. You can sit in on our virtual studio and get a little behind the scenes look at how we do the show. We'll do a live listener mailbag. So come with your questions ready. If you want to RSVP, go to live.ajc.com. That's live.ajc.com. And we hope you can join the show next Thursday, March 30th, the day after Signy Die at 5 p.m. Patricia, I know we're really excited about this. Greg, so true. The fact that we're doing this um, to have a live audience for Politically Georgia, it's one of all of the different ways that we want to bring the news to people, political news, um, either through live events of Politically Georgia, where we're going to be out around the community and hopefully around the state, we might have some plans uh, in that uh, in that vein coming up relatively soon. Um, then we'll have this live event. Um, I'm planning a Q&A with Maya and Mark in the days coming up as well. Uh, focused around Signy Die. We're going to have a special episode of Politically Georgia for Signy Die. So our commitment is to bring the news, slice it, dice it, smother it, serve it, however people in Atlanta will take it. We're the Waffle House <laughs> of political podcasts. <laughs> exactly. And we're delicious. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll take your word for it. Patricia, uh, something we've both written about is Governor Brian Kemp's unique role in this, all this as the start of his second term in office. Because look, he's not issuing veto threats. He's not out there advocating for specific pieces of legislation, but he's still very behind the scenes shaping the agenda at the Georgia Capitol. And what's interesting about this is he could. He could be heavy handed right now if he wanted to. He could go out there and make all sorts of public statements, get huge media turnout at every event. Uh, that he wants to, he could go issue veto threats. He could say, I want Bill XYZ passed. His approval rating in the last AJC uh, uh, poll was above 60%. So he's got the clout uh, after his re-election victory over Stacey Abrams to be able to you know, uh, pull a lot of favors at the Capitol. But he's not doing that. They, he and his aides are preferring a more backdoor, private way of developing their agenda at the state capitol. A great example of this, we just talked about, the fight over hospital rules when Trey Kilpatrick, the governor's top aide, joined Chancellor Sonny Perdue of the Board of Regents at that closed-door caucus meeting to raise concerns about the hospital bill. But we still haven't heard Governor Kemp publicly say outright that it's a bad idea, right? They're kind of letting the behind the scenes uh, shape that. Same thing with Buckhead. When we had that two-page memo from David Dove, the governor's executive counsel, laying out all sorts of problems with the Buckhead bill. But again, we didn't hear Governor Kemp say, this is a bad idea. That's exactly right. And it is so different from the last session that we had when Governor Kemp came to the General Assembly on Signy Die and gave a speech at eight o'clock at night, listing the bills that he still wanted to see, including the transgender sports bill was something that there the General Assembly really did not seem to have plans to move that bill before the end of session until Governor Kemp <laughs> showed up and gave a speech and said, I want this on my desk to sign. And sure well. enough, Within four hours, uh, it was passed, and then it was on his way, on its way to uh, be signed by the governor. So, in previous years, with elections looming, he has been a much more aggressive, assertive, visible governor. Um, in this case, a lot of the bills that he is looking for are just these kind of nuts and bolts infrastructure bills um, that 
first of all, don't really lend themselves to splashy press conferences and drawing a line in the sand. Um, he's been pushing for workforce infrastructure, physical infrastructure around the state, tax credits, tax cuts, um, the type of things that are going to continue to grow the Georgia economy. That has always been his real focus as governor when he's not busy dealing with pandemics, et cetera. Um, but so it feels like that is where he's going with this um, second term. But it does strike me it's also really different from somebody like Nathan Deal, who was really working very, very hard on criminal justice reform for every single year of his eight years in office. So he did a four-year package of bills in his first term focused on criminal justice, wins re-election, and comes back with another four years, one after another, after another, after another, of more bills expanding on criminal justice reform. It was this complete through line and theme of his entire tenure as governor and each year built on the next. You just don't feel that happening right now with Governor Kemp, other than the economic pieces and continuing to push Georgia and the ports and the roads and the ability to warehouse and move goods throughout the state um, and make it, quote, the best place to do business in the country. That really feels like what he's doing, but it hasn't even been as thematically sort of um, consistent as it was with Governor Deal. And Patricia, one more note before we get into the final segment of our show is as we wait for Donald Trump's expected potential indictment, I don't know how to phrase it, but the the indictment he said would be coming, you had a very thoughtful column about the pitfalls of the New York district attorney in Manhattan charging Donald Trump with paying off a porn star before indicting him, let's say here in Atlanta, on election fraud charges. And you also got a lot of feedback about it. Oh, I got a lot of feedback. And if you think that Donald Trump doesn't have his supporters, you are wrong because they're all in my email box <laughs> telling me exactly what they think of uh, of this idea that Donald Trump could be indicted here in the state of Georgia. And what I wrote about in my column was the fact that um, with so many potential indictments swirling, I think um, the risk exists that the general public will evaluate these all with sort of the same lowest common denominator. Uh, And so for the potential to start off against Donald Trump with what is essentially a bookkeeping fraud um, potential charge, and it could be bumped up to a felony right now, it's a misdemeanor if if he were to be charged with that. Um, That does not feel like something that, in my opinion, rises to the level of the unbelievable trauma you would see here in the country for a former president to be um, indicted and arrested for the first time. Um, To me, I think that needs to be something that has sort of a really broad scope of uh, potential damage and potential um, people who are affected by that. I do think that the case in Georgia is a lot stronger um, in that way, that the charges in New York really focus on Donald Trump, his attorney at the time, Michael Cohen, and Stormy Daniels, who is his alleged mistress, who he says he has um, never had any relationship with. Here in the state of Georgia, it's just irrefutable what Donald Trump um, was doing in the state, uh, the potential election fraud that he was conducting, as well as that of many people who were associates of Trump's, and just the spiraling effects here in the state of Georgia um, with the state legislature calling special hearings, with the state itself holding multiple recounts for all the world to see, 
um, for dozens of court challenges, all based on information that Donald Trump had been told repeatedly was not true. And so to me, that rises to a level um, where you're really challenging not just an election, but um, a democracy because it was Mm -hmm. done in a lot of ways outside the scope of the law. Um, And if you don't charge somebody when you think you could with charges like that, I think it really raises the question of why do we have election laws in the first place. So those questions feel very big and meaty and very much um, worth spending time on. Bookkeeping fraud, I'm not so excited about. <laughs> and, you know, the danger exists that that they will affect each other negatively and, and sort of bring all the cases down to the lowest level um, of the weakest charges. So that was my that was my column, and I sure did get some feedback from Trump supporters I, on I that. bet you did. And you can find all of Patricia's columns. Remember, she's not only the other host of this podcast and also the editor of The Morning Jolt, but you also have to write two columns a week. So you can find all of those on AJC.com. Well, you can now call the Politically Georgia podcast hotline anytime. Leave a question. And we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. Producer Shaney B is still on vacation, so producer Jay Black is standing by. Yeah, you, you forgot the mailbag sound. You just rolled right through it. No, Jay, we do that at the end now. You know, you you are just time. rusty. It's been a long time since you've you've, you've uh, well, we didn't, well actually we didn't have that while I was here. That was one of the adjustments uh, <laughs> that is Shane the, made. The many we many call that an innovation here in the politically I, Georgia podcast. It's it's good. I, th- I think our uh, our huge politically Georgia audience uh, gave Shane a break, knowing that he's on vacation, but was still going to have to answer the phone. Uh, we didn't get any calls this week, but we did get oh, one. No. Uh, we did get one. Uh, we got we like did, seven we, last week too, which yes, is funny. We, but we did get one uh, one email question. We, you know, we'll take your emails, we'll take your faxes, and can we people, will also take can your... Uh, text, can people text to that line, they, too? You know, they can page us. Yeah. So if you're listening, if you hear our voices, call us. We, we will take Carrier Pigeon, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Greg on the TikTok, uh, any way you want to oh, get us a question. Uh, I am all over TikTok. Anyway, uh, so uh, Gary Siegel, uh, who did not send this on TikTok, uh, he asks uh, or says here, it's beyond tragic, no other word, that our wealthy state won't expand Medicaid and put money into rural hospitals and doctors to keep them open. His question is, what's the holdup? Gary, the question is a great one. The answer is the Georgia General Assembly and the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, do not want to expand Medicaid. They don't want a full expansion of Medicaid. I'll put it that way. Um, However, the General Assembly has, in many cases over the last several years, pushed forward extremely narrow expansions of Medicaid. Governor Brian Kemp has also proposed and is moving forward with a very narrow expansion of Medicaid. Um, But the question of uh, doing a full expansion, I think politically, that's a non-starter for Republicans who very much still control the reins of government here in the state because that was made possible by the Affordable Care Act under President Barack Obama. That is just not a winner among Republican voters, not something that any Republican leader um, here in Georgia has shown any interest in. Um, and so uh, the result, although you know pretty significant federal funding would come with that, there would be a piece of it borne by the state, um, but that would also infuse the state with lots of 
millions and millions of health care dollars. But it's a it's an equation that uh, Republican state leaders have said they're just not interested in. I think you answered it perfectly. Um, there have been some speculation that in a second term that Governor Kemp would suddenly have a change of heart. I never bought into that. <laughs> and, and frankly, a lot of Republican leaders were saying that was not going to happen. And it especially is not going to happen now that a federal judge has ruled that his more limited proposal for a more limited Medicaid expansion is moving forward. Okay, Patricia, before we get to who's up and who's down, we do want to talk about some very important behind the curtains AJC internal news because it was an emotional day at the Journal Constitution's newsroom as our veteran editor, Kevin Riley, a beloved figure in the newsroom, announced he was retiring. Kevin leaves an incredible legacy, including guiding the newspaper through one of the most tumultuous periods in its history, through elections and natural disasters, the pandemic and national championships. He'll be missed. And Patricia, one thing I didn't realize, that he is the longest tenured editor-in-chief of a major metropolitan daily newspaper in the nation right now. Okay, that's incredible. Um, but it's believable because it's a very, very hard job to run a newspaper in a major metro area right now. It's just tough. The mechanics are tough. The business is tough. The news cycle is punishing. But Kevin Riley came up in just old school Ohio political coverage and sports coverage. And he just is such a journalist through and through. That guy loves his job. And he's loved it every time I've seen him. I've worked in seven news rooms. And I've just never worked for somebody like Kevin, who has such a big heart and such a passion for um, journalism and the industry and the reporters who work for him. So I've only been there at the paper for two years. And his leadership was just really something that I'm grateful that I had a chance to be a part of. And I've been here for about about 10 or 11 years now. He hired me. And um, one of the one of the most remarkable things about his leadership is that as tumultuous as things got, you know, there because there's all sorts of forces buffeting the industry, and of course, there's always stuff happening internally. He did his very best to never let us feel it, and just to, so that we could focus on our job. He trusts his employees. He trusts the managers he hires. He backed us up when we needed it. He delivered a uh, an anecdote today talking about a moment where a state's top politician called a press conference just to crap all over a story we had written, um, which happened a number of times under his leadership and a number of times probably in the last just year alone. And he he always stood behind our reporting and always vouched for us as reporters. And it, it, you just can't take that for granted. It's amazing leadership. Okay, Patricia, then there was another huge development. Leroy Chapman the longtime managing editor, one of Kevin's top deputies, is going to succeed Kevin Riley as the editor-in-chief of the AJC. Leroy was long seen as the heir apparent internally by many folks here at the AJC, and he's been one of the leading editors on politics, local government, education, and breaking news for years. He's also the first black editor in the newspaper's 155-year history, and his promotion was celebrated by the staff there was a standing ovation, multiple standing ovations. There was tears of joy. It was a very emotional moment in the newsroom, one I'll never forget. Yeah, and so I, I grew up here in Atlanta, and to me, the editor of the Atlanta newspaper was always one of the most important leaders in the city. They were seen as somebody who was integral to the function of the city and to the holding uh, – the 
political leaders accountable, holding the business leaders accountable. And so to see Leroy ascend to that position um, from an unbelievable career, as you said, editing and writing politics at the state newspaper in Columbia, which is one of the very best politics desks anywhere. Um, and Atlanta, AJC was able to woo him from over there. For him to come to Atlanta and now be promoted as editor is something that really gives me chills. It makes me so proud of this institution. And it really makes me, frankly, just proud of the city to mm -hmm. see Leroy take over that leadership spot. It is such a moment in history, frankly. It is it's just another moment of Atlanta um, becoming the city it was sort of always destined to become, I feel like. And um, again, just like Kevin Riley, Leroy is so big hearted. He asks me always, not just about my work, but about my family mm -hmm. and asks, how are we doing? Are you okay? <laughs> He's just an unbelievably wonderful leader. And um, I think people had known that if a change came, would, pe would people from outside the paper say, oh no, is, is it a shakeup? You know, it's not a shakeup. It's no. sort of like a gift from both of these gentlemen that they are giving themselves to this city and to this paper. So for Leroy to step in to me is just could not be could not be the better next step if Kevin if Kevin must leave and go live his life happily and the AJC needs a leader in his mold um, Leroy is just as good as it gets so I'm I'm excited if you can tell you hit the nail on the head I, I am so excited and I'm so excited for the future of this institution okay now it is time for our final segment the who's up and who's down <laughs> Patricia, we always like to end it on a high note. So who is your who's down for the week? My who's down for the week is anybody whose bill has died an untimely death here in the state of Georgia. There have been a lot of bills to go down in flames um, and uh, a lot of bills still on the bubble here as we're coming into the very final days of this legislative session. It's a two-year session for those listening. This is not do or die. It's just signy die. So they'll be back for another year that can continue this, these legislative debates. But it is a hard, it's a bitter pill to swallow if people's bills didn't get across in time for signy die and you know who you are um people's bills are really taking it on the chin this year it's it's not a it's not a session of major major movement in a lot of cases a lot of bills have stalled out and so um those are my who's down for now right now my who's down is the entire hospital industry because the last week or so this battle over hospital regulations been going on really since they were put in place in the 70s but for the last week or so, you've seen hospitals fighting with each other over these regulations. Wellstar has been put in a really difficult position, partly of their own making. Um, you've got other hospital systems saying that they oppose these changes, others saying they're supportive of it. And really, you know, our state's attention, at least the political world's attention has been focused on these arcane regulations that the hospital, <laughs> that many folks would rather ignore. So I'd say the hospital industry is my who's down for the week. Patricia, who's your who's up for the week? My who's up for the week is AJC Editor-in-Chief 
Kevin Riley, um, who is going out on his own terms after an unbelievable career. He will still be editor at large. So we he he won't be rid of us so quickly. He'll still be writing columns um, from time to time for the paper. He'll still be a part of the newsroom as we continue through these changes along with our, um, our new publisher, Andrew Morse. Um, and it just feels like a really bright new chapter for the AJC, but none of it would have been possible without Kevin Riley. So he is my big time who's up. He'll also get to spend more time with his dog, his Irish setter, Mac. So Mac is probably who's up as well. <laughs> Mac was also who's up in the morning jolt newsletter. That's right. You can get it in your inbox every Monday through Friday. <laughs> um, my who's up for the week are Atlanta City Council officials for playing the long game on the Democratic National Convention. We don't know if Atlanta is going to be the host of this showcase event, but we do know that officials are already planning just in case so they don't have to go pull strings at the last minute to try to plan for the DNC. So that is my who's up for the week. Well, thank you so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,